as we look at Scripture, we realize that it reveals God's plan for redeeming mankind. Because you need to remember that God in chapter 1 of Genesis made everything. In fact, He made it all good. No, He actually made it all very good. And then we see that um, His human creation was walking with Him in fellowship and in unity. And then they believed the lie of the deceiver and they fell into sin and they entered into slavery and into bondage and everything got broken. On that day, when Adam and Eve believed the lie and partook of the fruit, everything got broken. Their relationship with God got broken. Their relationship with one another got broken. And their relationship with their environment got broken. Everything broke. And they were now in bondage to the liar. They were cast from the garden. And one gets to the end of Genesis chapter 2 and has to ask, is there hope? What's going to happen? And in the midst of the tragedy, in the midst of of this calamity that affects us today, we begin to see God setting forth His plan of redemption. And we come to Genesis 3.15, which you all know. And here we see God speaking a curse to the serpent. And in this curse is an amazing promise an amazing foreshadowing of what is about to happen. And he says this to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And you will bruise him on the heel and he will bruise your head. And on that day, mankind was given a promise that there would come a day where the serpent would be destroyed and one would rise up who would destroy the works of the serpent, and he would come through the seed of the woman. And so this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is one of the big storylines in the Bible. We, of course, studied that when we are in the book of Genesis. But we see this enmity, and we first see it between Cain and Abel, the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent seeks to destroy the seed of the woman. And it looks successful. But then... God raises up another seed. The sons of Seth come against the sons of Cain. And we see all of this going on through Genesis chapter 6. And then we see God raise up Noah. And then we see God begin to work through the line of Shem. And then we see um, Abram raised up. And we begin to see the sons of Jacob and the sons of Esau. And we see this enmity constantly. The sons of Cain against the sons of Abel, and we see the sons of Shem against the, or the sons of Seth against the sons of Cain, and this constant warring, this constant enemy. We come then to the sons of Jacob, who is the one that God was going to be to fulfill His promise through Jacob, and we should not be surprised then that we see enmity between Jacob, the chosen one, and Esau, the one who was not chosen. You remember when the people of Israel came out of Egypt. Remember the first battle they had? It was against the sons of Amalek. And I forgot the passage it's in, but I, I remember the phrase. Then came Amalek. And what does Amalek do? Amalek comes to seek and to destroy Jacob, Israel. Guess where Amalek comes from? 
He comes from Esau. He's a descendant of Edom. And then you'll recall way back, way fast forward over into the book of Esther. What happens? Who's the great um, antagonist? A man by the name of Haman. What's he trying to do? Kill the sons of Israel. Guess where Haman comes from? Esau. Seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. And then guess what? Jesus is born. And what does Herod try to do? Kill him. Guess who, he, who Herod is related to? Seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. Man, it started in Genesis and it continues on. And then we see God working His plan. And so a line came through Noah. It came through Abraham. It came through Isaac. It came through Jacob. And then in Matthew 1.16, we see a person by the name of Jesus come through that line. A man would come through the woman whose heel would be bruised by the serpent, saying, basically saying that there would be a temporary and superficial wound. But it's this one who would bruise the head of the serpent and destroy the works of the devil. So that's the broad context. We need to hear what Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And we need to hear it because it's important for us to understand that God has a plan. God has had a plan from the very beginning. And God is going to fulfill His plan. And His plan is to bring many children to glory. And that plan cannot be thwarted. It cannot be abrogated. It cannot be compromised. It cannot be diluted. The works of Satan cannot thwart it or stop it. It is God's plan. God has a plan. He will bring it to pass. And that plan is is the plan of redemption. And we see the plan of redemption unfold in the words of Scripture. And so that is our broad context. And so we come now to Galatians chapter 4 and we're going to see that Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7 is the apex of God doing exactly what He said He was going to do back in Genesis. And so Paul begins with this illustration. Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and and managers until the date set by his father. And so, Paul, this is actually a continuation of what Paul was saying, what we talked about last week, that Paul was asked, is the law worthless? Why do we even have a law? If we're saved by um, grace through faith, through the merits of Christ alone, why was there ever a law? And Paul was explaining that the law did exactly what the law was supposed to do. It revealed sin. That's what it did. It showed us the sinfulness of sin. And... um, And we compared it to an x-ray machine. An x-ray machine shows where the break is, but it doesn't fix the break. It would be like saying, well, we don't like x-ray machines because they they don't do anything. They don't fix anything. No, they don't because they were never intended to fix anything, but they do exactly what they said, what they're supposed to do. They reveal where the break is. This is what the law does. It tells us where things are broken, but it is powerless to fix what is broken. And so Paul is going on describing why the law, why it's good to have this, this law. And so as we pick up in chapter 4, verse 1, we're kind of coming into the middle of his thought. And he's describing, and he gives this human illustration. So he says, it's kind of like this. If you're the child of a wealthy individual, you, uh, 
Your dad owns a lot. Got himself a big old ranch. And the son was, the son was under the rule of a guardian. He was under the rule of a tutor. He was under the rule of a teacher. And somewhere between, at least according to Roman custom, and there is some debate as to whether we're talking about Roman custom, Greek culture, or whether we're talking about Jewish custom, but I'm just going to go with Roman, and I won't bog you down with the details. So somewhere between the ages of 14 and 17, depending on the discretion of the father, the child would be formally introduced into public life. At that point, he was considered mature. And so here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that... Until then, until the child is ready to uh, come into public life as one who is seen as mature, until then, the child is under strict authority of the guardian. So he is really treated no differently than a slave, even though he's the heir of everything. He is born into the family. He's going to inherit everything. All of the, all of the, the father's property, all of the father's wealth, all of the father's um, assets, actually belong to the heir. But until he comes into maturity, he's treated no different than a slave. In fact, he has a household manager who tells him, get up at this time, go to bed at this time, do your homework. This is what you're going to learn today. This is what you're going to eat today. This is what you're not going to eat today. These are your chores. Do this, do that. Don't do this and don't do that. And he was under very strict authority. And so while he is an heir, his status is no greater than that of a slave. He's being bossed around. He's being bossed around by a guy eventually he's going to boss around himself. And notice this phrase, until the time set by his father. The release from childhood to maturity would come at a time that the father determined And so this tells us that this time of bondage, this time of being under the authority of a guardian was temporary. And while it was. uh, While this was in effect, it never annulled the promise. The promise is you're the heir. You're going to inherit everything. But I'm going to put some some legal restrictions on you. Those legal restrictions do not abrogate or annul the promise that you're the heir and that you're going to receive everything. But until the date that I set, you are going to be under some very severe restrictions. So that's Paul's human illustration. And then he begins with this. He says, so we also. In other words, this was just an illustration. And now he's saying, that's kind of how the law worked in our lives. We were held in bondage. We were held in bondage to the elemental things. And of course, now there's a whole lot of discussion as to what these elemental things are. And Paul uses um, this term four times. I think I put them in your notes um, and we'll discuss it also again next week. But the way this, this term elemental, um, elemental things, some of your Bibles maybe even says elemental spirits. And that's a, that's a valid understanding. But Three basic understandings, and then we'll figure out which one works best. The first one is that these elemental things concern to the basic elements from which the world were made. That is, earth, air, fire, and water. The elemental things could be elemental spirits that are spiritual powers, basic spiritual powers. Or, as we will understand it today, the third way elemental things is understood is Basic principles, the essential ingredients, the ABCs. 
You can't have a word unless you have a letter. Or you have to have more than one. Well, I guess you can have one letter to make a word, A. But these are the ABCs. And so Paul is saying that as children, we were enslaved to the elementary, the basic principles of things. That is, do this and don't do that. Thou shalt not and thou shalt. And you were under these basic elementary principles until the day set by your heavenly father. Does that kind of, do you kind of get where Paul's going with that? Nod your head or shake your head. One of the two. Okay. Say amen. That, that's helpful. So basically, in summary of this, this first little illustration that Paul is using is that Paul provides an illustration from public life to describe how God has used the law. That is, that the law is used, is, serves as a guardian until the day set by his father when childhood things would pass away and maturity would come. Having finished his illustration, Paul then says, but when the fullness of time came, But when the fullness of time came, you see, God has a plan. God has a plan to bring about his purposes. God has a plan to bring about redemption. In the fullness of time, can we advance one more slide? In the fullness of time, God has a a plan. We see Jesus coming on the scene and says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. So there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. And the fullness of time. There was a time designated when the seed of the woman would come upon the the scene and serve to destroy the seed of the serpent. And this all came about in the fullness of time. In other words, God made a promise back in Genesis chapter 3.15. And in the fullness of time, God did exactly what God said He was going to do. In the fullness of time, God actually... The text tells us that God did two things. I'd like to look at those two things. In the fullness of time, the first thing that God did was that God sent forth His Son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. That is that Jesus, the Son of God, is the apex of God's redemptive plan. And here, when we see God refer, or Paul referring to Jesus as the Son of God, that God sent forth His Son, we are talking about what we might label as the exaltation of the Son of God. That is, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. There are some who teach that Jesus did not become the Son of God until until His baptism or until His crucifixion. I want you to understand that Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God. There is never a time when Jesus was not, and there is never a time when He was not the exalted, eternal Maker of all things, whom angels worship, to whom belongs power, glory, riches, and honor, and blessing forever and ever. And in in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, the eternal Maker of all things, whom angels worship, whom belongs power, riches, glory, and honor, and blessing forever and ever. At the right time, God sent that one. Let me just give a little shameless plug. If you think that's exciting, you should come to our Hebrew study on Wednesday nights. Because that's what we're right. Isn't that exactly what we're studying? We're t- studying about the, the eternal. The, we're talking 
calling it consider Jesus, who is the eternal maker of all things, whom angels worship, who God commands angels to worship, who is uh, the one who belongs power, riches, honor, glory, blessing forever and ever. That's who we're looking at. And that's the one that God sent. But God did not all, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And here we see the, what we might term the humiliation of Jesus Christ. That is his human birth. In other words, the eternal God who has always been, who lives and reigns forever and ever, put on flesh and dwelt among us. Born of a woman. It's interesting that there is no mention of an earthly father. Seed of the woman, perhaps. But he, we call this humiliation because now the creator of all things is actually dependent upon that which he created. And he lived a life fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He was born under the law. That is, he was born under those elementary principles that we just mentioned. He was subjected to the elementary principles and he fulfilled all of the requirements of the elementary principles. And so, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then Paul tells us that the sending of this son was not for no purpose. It was not for just a mere example, but God sent his son to do two things. At least in this very concise and precise passage of text, the son of God came and the son of God did two things. For in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem. Notice, the Son of God did not come to set an example or to be a nice guy or to teach us great truth, but to redeem. And the fact that, we, that, that He came to redeem implies that there is, implies, I think, bondage. That is, that to redeem somebody is to purchase them. And this had uh, connotations in the slave market where a person would redeem or purchase um, a servant. And so if Christ comes to redeem, it implies that there is imprisonment. It implies that we cannot rescue ourselves. It implies pretty loudly, pretty boldly, that there is something that is keeping us enslaved and you and I cannot free ourselves. We need something outside of ourselves. Slaves don't free other slaves. You cannot free yourself. This is what Paul's arguing against. The Judaizer, who Paul is, is, uh, is dealing with here, are saying, oh no, you can free yourselves. If you turn God's commandments into a ladder into heaven by which you ascend by your righteous good deeds, and you keep doing enough righteous good deeds, you can make your way into God's presence. In other words, you can save yourself through good actions and right, teach, or right morals and living the right life and doing the right things. And Paul is saying, no, you are enslaved. That ladder will never get you where you need to go. You need to be redeemed. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Folks, redemption comes from outside of ourselves. And here's what we see. This is so important. 
In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So we see both the exaltation of Christ and we see his humiliation. We see his divinity and we see his humanity. You need to understand that God, that Jesus Christ is both fully divine and fully man. The smart guys call that the hypostatic union. Arvid, you need to remember that. Write that down. That's your new word for the week to remember. But... All that means is that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, fully human, fully God. And you say, why is that necessary? That just seems so complicated because here's the thing. It is man who has offended God and man must make it right. Man is the one who owes the debt. Here's the problem. God is the one who has everything. By God is the one who's the offended party. And by the way, God is the one who has all the resources. So a human being can never pay the debt himself because he has no means. You say, well, what if I do a bunch of good things and, I'm, and I'm, I live a perfect life? Let me tell you, even if you live a perfect life, God gave you the ability to live that perfect life. And so, in essence, your ability to live a perfect life was God's gift to you in the first place. What are you going to do? Offer God what he already gave you? We've talked about that. It's like when the, when the parent gives the child to uh, buy a present for their birthday, right? You know, and the little kid comes and say, Mom, Dad, look what I bought you. Well, you bought it with my own money. It's cute. It's nice. But let's be real. I bought it, right? See, but that doesn't work in salvation. Man cannot pay for his own sins. Only God can pay for sins. But only man owes the debt. So what's the solution? The solution is that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That is, the eternal son of God puts on flesh, dies on behalf of man, sinless, but he is God. And so the sacrifice is acceptable. Oh, that's the beauty of the truth of Arvid, that hypostatic union. So the purpose, the first purpose of God sending the exalted Son of God into human flesh was to redeem you and I from bondage. But that's not all. He also came to adopt. It's one thing to redeem somebody out of the slave market. It would be a a whole different thing to adopt. Folks, slavery is still alive and well. It hasn't gone anywhere. The slave trade is a horrific thing. And it would be like this. You know, you have uh, corrupt individuals who will facilitate a person's, say, entrance into the United States. And they say, you don't need to pay any money up front. When you get there, I've got a place for you to work and you can just work it off. But they never work it off. There's a, the interest is too high. It's impossible to work it off. And they're kept in slavery. But imagine this. You come along, and this person who has been enslaved all of their lives, working in a sweatshop, selling themselves um, for money for their uh, captors, and you come along and you pay it off. And now that person's free. And you say, well, now, there you go. Have a nice day. You're free. But where do I go? 
I don't know anything except the sweatshop. I don't know anything but the streets. Where can I go? See, when the Son of God came to purchase us, He did not just redeem us and leave us there and say, have a nice day, to which we would say, well, where would I go? All I know is slavery. That's all I know. When God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, He also then adopted them into His family. So it would be like you going to this individual, paying off their fines, paying off their fees, and now say, you come into my household and you partake of everything that I have. All that is mine is now yours. That's a whole different thing, isn't it? It's one thing to be redeemed out of slavery. It's a whole different thing to become a child and to be adopted into the family of the one who redeems you. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law and to adopt us into His family. That is God's plan, was to make slaves into children. Freedom is great. Adoption is better. I told you God did two things. In the fullness of time, God did two things. The first thing that God did was that He sent His Son. And we see the two reasons why the Son of God came. But the second thing then that God did is that God sent forth His Spirit. Because you are sons of God, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are children... Text says, because you are sons, you don't mind if I use that in the collective sense, and we will not be um, politically correct, but it has to do with children. And so male or female, we just read last couple weeks ago that, that in the kingdom of Christ there is no male, no female, no slave, nor free, nor Jew, nor Greek, no barbarian, or any of that stuff. All of those walls are broken down. But God has brought you And because you are children, because you are children, God has sent forth His Spirit. Folks, this is, there are family privileges. And because you are children of God, you have, there are some family privileges. I know when I go to my mom's house, because I'm family, I just sometimes go in the refrigerator and start grazing around, right? You know, Uh, if I come to your house, I probably won't do that. You know, unless you give me permission, unless I said, hey, can I, you know, go, go look in the refrigerator, get something. But in my house, I just go in the refrigerator. There are family privileges. There are it's just part of being part of my family. That I can go and do those things. There are things I can get away with in my household that I wouldn't do in your household. And there are family privileges to being part of the family of God. And because you are children of God, God sent forth His Spirit. God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Folks, the Spirit of God is the sign. It is the pledge. It is the assurance that you have a new status, that you are no longer slaves, that you are not just wandering the streets, but you are children of God, adopted into the family of God. And the Spirit of God is the sign, the assurance that you have a new status. You are no longer a slave. You are now a child. This idea of Abba, Father, is, is, a sign of in, is a term of intimacy. It is a term reserved for children. 
before my father passed away a number of years ago, Simone was very, very good to my dad. Very good to my dad. And he was family to her and she was family to, that, to him. And she loved my dad. And she called him Lauren. But when we'd see her dad, it was daddy. It's a term reserved for family. This is what Abba is. It's a term reserved for family. And because you're family, you can call God your father. An intimate term, you can call him daddy or whatever intimate term you might want to use. But it's a term of relationship. So you are no longer a slave. You are now a child of God. And as a child of God, you have full rights and full access and to call out Abba, Father. And the Spirit of God, like I said, is the assurance that God is your Father. We see this in Romans 8, 15, and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons who, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It is the Spirit in you that assures you that you are a child of God. If you have confessed Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, if you have repented of your sins and called upon the name of the Lord, you're a child of God. Don't let the enemy lie to you about that. Maybe you had a bad week. Maybe you didn't live as you ought to have lived. Maybe you did some things that weren't too family-like. And I know the enemy comes and says, really? And you call yourself a child of God? After that? Are you certain that God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the assurance that we are family members and that God is our Father? We've been adopted into His family and He doesn't kick us out because we spilled the milk or something worse. Confess your sins and He will be righteous and faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So you're no longer a slave, you are a child. And God has sent His Spirit to confirm that in you. I do want to point out, I hope you noticed that the Trinitarian aspect of your salvation. We saw this a few weeks ago. But the Father sent the Son. The Father sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in us to cry out, Abba, Father. So it is in the Spirit in us that calls us to recognize our Heavenly Father who sent the Son, who sent the Spirit, who has saved us. Wow, I could end there, I think. That's pretty good, don't you think? I like that. Yeah. That's enough for me. I'd be satisfied with that. But see, when I'm satisfied with God's not. See, because God's not like me, thankfully. 
God gives abundantly and graciously and overflowingly more than you and I could ever ask or dream of. And so in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that, um, to redeem those who are under the law and to adopt us as his, as his children. And because you are children of God, he has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father, but wait, there's more. If you are a son or a child, then it only follows then that you are an inheritor, an heir. That is, you are a recipient of everything that, of all of God's promises. So, God sent forth his son to purchase us, and therefore you are no longer a slave. You are a child, but you are not just a child. You are an heir through God. And all of the promises of God are now yours. If a son, then an heir. And if an heir, you are a recipient of everything that God has given you. Folks, I want you to understand that your inheritance, that all of the promises of God are yours, not by merit, not by your self-righteousness, but because of the work outworking of the triune God in your life. This is Paul's message. Paul's message is, do you think you can earn that? What an insult to say, well, thank you, God. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for doing all of that. Now, let me add just something because I think you left something out. You didn't quite make it. It was good, but not quite good enough. This is what Paul's arguing against. Paul is saying absolutely not. God purchased you. God sent his son to purchase your salvation and sent his spirit to assure you that you are his child. And if you are his child, you're not a slave. And if you're his child, you are an inheritor of all of his promises. And God says, I think that's I think I'm sufficient to do everything you need to do to be my child. So not by merit, not by self-righteousness, not by your own outworking of goodness, not because your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, but because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together from the very beginning of time to bring about in the fullness of time to bring you into his kingdom. And so I'll conclude with this. God has a plan. God's plan is an eternal plan. And his plan is to bring many children into his glorious kingdom. Genesis 1 begins with paradise. Genesis 2 is paradise lost. Genesis 3 is the promise of a paradise to come. And Galatians 4 is that in the fullness of time, God did exactly what God said he was going to do. And so in the fullness of time, God fulfilled his promise. The son has come and now it is time to repent and believe the gospel. And here is the gospel, that there is a God. He is a holy God and he has created all things. He has made all things. That means he has created you. Because he has created you, you are accountable to this holy God. But here's the thing. All of us have turned away from the holy God. We've all sinned. We've rebelled against him. We call that sin. We've done what we ought not to do. He said, do this. And we did the exact opposite. That's sin. As a result of sin, as a result of our rebellion, we have become sinners. And the wages of sin is death. 
Not just physical death, but eternal death. Eternally separated from the loving God who created you. Now that's a problem. That's bad news. Here's the good news. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem you. To purchase you back and to make you his. And so he died on the cross. The perfect son of God, the perfect sinless son of God, bore God's wrath on your behalf so that you might be a child of God. And if you would confess your sins and give your life and give your life and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Be Lord of my life. Jesus will be the Lord of your life. And here's what I'm telling you. I am not asking you to simply raise your hand. I am asking you, and I'm not asking you to make Jesus part of, come into your, into your heart. Here's, I'm asking something way more radical. This is maybe why we don't get a whole lot of conversions this way. I'm not asking you to raise your hand, sign a card, or do any of that stuff. See, and I'm not asking you to make Jesus Lord, to come into your heart. Here's what's happened. Jesus said, I, will, I am the Lord and I will be the Lord of your life. If, you, if Jesus is Lord, he's going to come in and he's going to radically, radically rearrange your life. He's not coming in just to kind of stand by and walk with you as you just continue in your own life, blessing what you've always done. Oh, no. He's going to come in and overturn some tables of your heart. He's going to change you from the inside out. And He is going to be the Lord of your life. And there is no better place for you to be. There will be no greater joy than when Jesus is is in charge of your life. There is no greater satisfaction than when Jesus rules your life. You've tried it before. You've done it on your own. And it doesn't work. And yet Jesus is the Lord of your life. And by attaching him, yourself to Him. See, Jesus never said, let me come and be part of your life. He always said, come and follow me. And right now, He's saying, come and follow me. Do what I do. Follow after me. Let... And so if you are sensing, if you've never made that decision, but God is putting that on your heart. I want you to know that today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Do not wait until tomorrow. Do not wait until later. Right now, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, then now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. Do you join me in prayer? Our Father, we come before you with great praise and with adoration, for you are the Lord of heaven. You are the Lord of all. There is nothing in the universe over which you are not king and Lord and ruler. And when we messed everything up by our sin, your plan was not thwarted or dislodged or annulled in any way. You are the God of plan A's. You have no plan B. You have no need of a plan B. Because all of your purposes come to pass. And so, Lord, we now turn away from our resisting of your plan. We turn away, Lord God, from the fighting. We turn away from the rebellion against you. And we turn to you and say, Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive us of our sins and make us children of God. Not just children, Lord. Make us heirs of all of your promises. You are a merciful and great King who has loved us with a great love. And we bow before you now as King and Lord of our lives. Lord, if any have sinned in in this building today, Lord, 
I pray that they would confess their sins and be free from them and that you would be faithful and just to forgive them of their sins. Have mercy on us, Lord God. We give you praise, we give you thanks, and we rejoice now in the great salvation that you have purchased for us. Amen.